This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Brendan Carrot of Media Matters shared a clip from Tucker Carlson's program where he was speaking with fellow right-wing commentator Jesse Kelly. And what they say in this clip is shocking. I genuinely cannot believe that they admitted to this. And look, Tucker Carlson is one of the many Fox News hosts that says egregious things and just admits things that you wouldn't expect them to admit. But in this clip, they're shockingly going to admit that the GOP base is going to go more extreme, assuming things don't change within the country. Things being, you know, general things that they don't like. The fact that Hunter Biden didn't get into trouble for the laptop, the fact that Trump was raided by the FBI, just general grievances that the right has with the United States and the Democratic Party and the deep state and the establishment, yada, yada, yada. But what they say here, it's shocking. Let's watch. I think you make a really solid point about the sadness and the powerlessness that people feel in the face of this. And at some point people are gonna say, why should I follow the rules? Why should I be a good citizen if they don't have to follow the rules? I mean, things kind of break down at some point, don't they? Well, they will break down. They are breaking down, Tucker. I, I've said this before, and I'm telling you, I'm, I'm worried that I'm right. The right is going to pick a fascist within 10 to 20 years because right. they're not going That's to right. be the only, one, the only ones on the outs. There's 60, 70 million of us. We're not a tiny minority. And if we're going to be all treated like criminals and all subject to every single law while Antifa Black Lives Matter guys go free and Hunter Biden goes free, then the right's going to take drastic measures. And it's not about Hunter Biden and his drug use. Nobody cares that guy was was bumping booger sugar exactly. lines off European hookers on the weekend. It's about justice that he's never held accountable for, and none of the Bidens are, but you would be, Tucker, and so would I. That's so well put, and you're absolutely right. We're moving toward actual extremism because they're undermining the system that kept extremism at bay, and I, I don't think we can say that enough. I'm so glad that you just said it. They straight up just said it. They're just admitting, yeah, you know, I hope that they don't, but the right, they're going to pick a real fascist, maybe in 10, 20 years. First of all, too late. They already did. But the implication is that if they're going to pick somebody who's an actual fascist, assuming that they believe Trump is not a fascist, which he is. But what they're saying is they're going to pick somebody demonstrably worse, demonstrably more authoritarian than Donald Trump if they don't get their way. And Tucker Carlson agreed with everything that Jesse Kelly said. And Jesse Kelly added that the right is going to take drastic measures that's what he said verbatim if things don't change tucker carlson said we're moving towards actual extremism because they're undermining the system that kept extremism at bay first of all that's projection second of all think about what he's telling his audience here his audience is being told that in the event they do become fascist they don't have to beat themselves up about that because it's not really their fault it's the left's fault it's you know the democratic party's fault because they're the ones who pushed them into this predicament they've been backed into a corner therefore if they become full-blown fascists that's justified not because of them but because of what's happening to them because they are the victims according to tucker carlson 
to admit this is insane. And just think about this for a minute. Ask yourself this question. Would you caucus with a group of people who you felt would turn to actual violence in 10 to 20 years? As a leftist, if I felt as if the left would become increasingly violent within the next decade or two, I would think maybe this group isn't for me. Maybe I, I can't associate with them. But they're just like, yeah, our base is going to go in this direction if we don't get what we want. That is horrifying. And this is a sign that if you haven't been taking fascism and the threat that it poses to U.S. democracy seriously, this should be your wake-up call. They're admitting it. Yes, our base is going to pick a fascist. Like, you usually get pushback from the right when you tell them that most of the Republican Party has gone full fascist. Not all of them. Some of them are just regular conservatives. Many of them are still proto-fascists. But when you tell them that the right has gone fascist, they'll push back. And they'll say, that's not accurate. In fact, there was pushback after Biden said that the Republican Party has gone semi-fascist. Now, I don't agree with that because I think that they've gone full fascist for the most part, but there was still some pushback. But now what we're seeing is them just kind of embracing, yeah, this is kind of our trajectory. That should horrify everyone. Now, the reason why this is happening is because of the leaders who they still look up to and deify and how they just have no respect for democracy and the rule of law. Take Trump, for example. He just tweeted this out on Truth Social. So now it comes out conclusively that the FBI buried the Hunter Biden laptop story before the election, knowing that if they didn't, Trump would have easily won the 2020 presidential election. This is massive fraud and election interference at a level never seen before in our country. Remedy, declare the rightful winner or, and this would be the minimal solution, declare the 2020 election irreparably compromised and have a new election immediately. So it's Trump. It's stupid. But let's dissect that because what he's saying here is important. So first of all, he's claiming now that it wasn't necessarily the voter machines and fraud in that way that led to him losing. It's the FBI supposedly burying, uh, burying the Hunter Biden story. First of all, I don't give a fuck about the Hunter Biden story. Throw Hunter Biden in jail for all I care. OK, this is not something that would have led to Trump winning. It just I'm sorry, it wouldn't have Trump lost in 2020 because of the political context within that time. He mishandled COVID-19. He mishandled the Black Lives Matter protests, didn't meet the moment, further fanned the flame. So there's a plethora of reasons why he lost, but not having Hunter Biden exposed is not one of them. Now, regardless of how you feel about that story, think about what he's calling for. He wants to be declared the rightful winner or have the election redone. What he's calling for is the things that dictators do. Nope, there was fraud. So... I'm the rightful winner. Therefore, I will remain in power. And so this is the individual who the GOP base looks up to, who they deify. So when Tucker Carlson and Jesse Kelly admit that the GOP base is going full fascist within 10 to 20 years, I actually agree with them. But you think that they wouldn't want to admit this. But the fact that they're willing to admit this, well, if you read the subtext, it tells us that they're kind of giving the base permission. Because again, think about what message that sends oh, okay, well, I guess, yeah, this is kind of the trajectory and I don't have to blame myself for becoming a full-blown fascist because the Democrats made me do it. Scary shit here. Now, it gets worse when you consider the GOP base and Trump voters in particular, their view of whether or not a civil war 
is likely. Now, Philip Bump of the Washington Post responded to that Trump tweet, saying this should be considered in the context of a disconcerting new poll finding released by YouGov. Four in 10 Americans think that a civil war may be likely within the next decade. Among those who say they voted for Trump in 2020, it's more than 50 percent, a group that also expects political violence to increase a lot over the coming years. Now, let's look at those polls. So as you can see, the YouGov Economist poll confirms Trump voters do disproportionately view civil war as somewhat or very likely, although this doesn't necessarily mean that they want civil war per se, but perhaps they view it as an inevitability if Trump continues to get, quote, cheated or something. Now, going to graphic two here, most voters do view political division as increasing by a lot, but especially Trump voters. So Democrats and Biden voters, they are slightly more optimistic, but, you know, I personally am not. Division, in my opinion, will increase so long as Trump's lies continue and extremism dominates the GOP. So I don't necessarily think that, you know, an answer to this question indicates that you support extremism. It just means that you look at the context, you look at the current state of the U.S. And yeah, it's obviously likely. Now, finally, looking at graphic three here. Voters mostly expect political violence to increase a lot over the next few years. Now, with that in mind, Philip Bump adds, we should stipulate that discussion of civil war is very different from any actual conflict. In fact, experts on civil conflict believe that a full-on armed conflict between political groups is unlikely for a variety of reasons, and that political violence might instead manifest as sporadic flare-ups. Now, I actually agree with that analysis. I can't necessarily, at this point in time, envision a state in America where we're seeing a full blown civil war. I think that flare-ups are most likely, or in the event the GOP, you know, Donald Trump comes to power, you see a lot more subjugation of his political opponents, uh, turning them into second-class citizens, continuing to, you know, further marginalized uh, already, uh, you know, disadvantaged groups, something of that nature, but not necessarily full-blown civil war at this date and time. That can change, of course. But still, like, even if this best case scenario with regard to a civil war comes to fruition, you know, these sort of flare-ups are still detrimental to democracy. I mean, look at Tunisia. They saw political assassinations happening at alarming rates, and their democracy now has effectively been completely dismantled. However, the caveat is that newly democratized regimes like Tunisia, they do struggle to consolidate democracy and build up institutional legitimacy, so it's not necessarily a one-to-one -one comparison to the United States. But still, I think that most political scientists would agree that increasing political violence, even flare-ups, is a worrying sign for long-term political stability, and it is detrimental to democracy overall. And now Tucker Carlson and Jesse Kelly, they're saying, yeah, I, I think it's accurate to predict that the right is going to pick a full-blown fascist. Now, if they admit that their side is likely going to pick a full-blown fascist, they are in positions of influence and power, right? Tucker Carlson is the most popular news host in America. I don't know how popular Jesse Kelly is, but Tucker Carlson certainly has a giant platform. Wouldn't he think, okay, if this is happening, well, I have to really pay close attention to my rhetoric and make sure that I'm not fanning the flames, but he's not doing that. And ask yourself, why is he not doing this? Well, it's because he doesn't want to. He thinks that the GOP picking a full-blown fascist perhaps is good. Maybe he one day wants to be the full-blown fascist that they pick. So I don't necessarily see this as a prediction from Tucker Carlson and Jesse Kelly. Uh, I see this as a threat, 
a threat that, hey, if you don't do what we want, we will go further to the right. And that should horrify absolutely everyone because we've been warning you, many people, myself, others have been saying the GOP is becoming full-blown fascist for a while now. And we're reaching a point where the the most popular news broadcaster in America is kind of just not even pushing back against that and saying, yeah, my side might go full fascist. And they'd be justified to do that. That's a really worrying sign. And I hope that people take this seriously because this is a warning sign that things are going to get a lot worse in the United States if the GOP does not fight against extremist elements within their own party. That requires courage, however, and we know that GOP leaders just don't have that. So unfortunately, Tucker Carlson and Jesse Kelly may be right. They may get what they likely want. As a, as a veteran myself, this is a slap in the face. And the other piece that not a lot of people are talking about is that the military uses educational benefits as a key recruiting tool. I feel like we've reached the joker phase of the Biden presidency. All we're lacking now is the face paint in a purple suit. He's riding a parade float down Pennsylvania Avenue just tossing money out the window here. The day I got elected to the Senate, I had over $100,000 still in student loans that I was able to pay off because I wrote a book. And from that money, I was able to pay it. If not, it would never, I'd still be paying. That there is a real risk. If, if you are that, that slacker barista who, who, who wasted seven years in college studying completely useless things, now has loans and can't get a job, Joe Biden just gave you 20 grand. Like, holy cow, 20 grand. That, you know, maybe you weren't going to vote in November and suddenly you just got 20 grand. And, you know, if you can, you know, get off the bong for a minute and, and, and head down to the voting station uh, or just send in your mail in uh, ballot that the Democrats have helpfully sent you, um, it could drive up turnout, hmm. uh, particularly among young people. Oh, no. Joe Biden doing good things for working class Americans could drive up turnout. Whatever will we do? I mean, I don't know, Ted Cruz, what if the Republican Party proposed their own student debt cancellation plan that's better than Joe Biden's? Maybe you all could help drive up turnout. Instead, no, they don't want to do anything. They just complain when Democrats take small steps to help people. See, Republicans couldn't care less about your debt, your student debt, your medical debt. They don't care about you. And even if you are suffering, they will do nothing to alleviate your suffering because their goal is to exclusively serve their billionaire donors. But Democrats, they mostly do the same thing. But from time to time, they will throw working people a bone. And whenever they do that, knowing that it's popular, Republicans freak out. And Republicans, they could just try to, I don't know, appeal to these bong-smoking student debt holders, but instead they choose to attack them. Just truly despicable, letting them know how much they hate working class Americans who will benefit from this very popular program. Now, what I'm noticing is that the student debt arguments is becoming somehow even dumber because what we previously heard from people who were opposed to this was just that, well, isn't this a little bit unfair that you're making some plumber who didn't go to college pay for the student debt of some Ivy League uh, you know, graduate when, I mean, if you're rich, you're not going to have student debt by definition because you wouldn't take that out unless you, you need the student loans. But we've heard that argument and now it seems like the liberals who are opposed to this, they've adopted that argument and the Republican argument against student debt, just broadly speaking, has become overall dumber. So you saw Marco Rubio say, well, look, I had student debt when I became a senator and I wrote a book. 
Oh, well, dummy, why didn't I just think of that? <laughs> just fucking get a book deal. <laughs> Make sure it's a lucrative book deal. Um, and then sell that book to millions of people. It's that easy. You could pay off your student debt like that. Why didn't you think of that, you fucking idiot? I mean, these people are not living in reality. And then we had Scott Jennings, that's the Bush administration official, who claimed that Biden went Joker mode over student debt cancellation. Okay. And I, I just love one representative, Michael Waltz, admitted that this is going to hurt military recruitment because how dare you get free college or have your college paid for unless you risk your life and possibly die so we can send you overseas to fight in one of our wars that is very profitable for our defense contractor donors. I mean, this is what they're saying. They think this is compelling to average Americans. It's not. And I have the data to reflect that. But I just want to be clear. This isn't just Republicans who are bemoaning Biden canceling student debt. They have the dumbest arguments for sure. But liberals are also against it as well. Not all liberals. They're kind of it seems like they're 50-50 split, maybe 60-40. I'm not necessarily sure with the 60% supporting it. But overall, uh, liberal politicians, liberal pundits also don't seem too thrilled about this. Case in point. Well, it's bad policy as well as bad politics. Right? For that amount of money, you could fund free pre-K for every three and four-year-old for 10 years. You do a lot more good for poor people, communities of color, and, and the underprivileged by, by doing pre-K. Uh, you could forgive all medical debt which unlike student debt is not freely entered into. The vast majority of Americans didn't go to college and they don't have college loans. So they're a little pissed about this. They're like, you know, there are plumbers out there saying, well, why don't you pay off my truck? Congressman, in 2018, you tweeted, quote, student debt is out of control. If we can bail out the banks who did everything wrong, we can help out the students who did everything right. Isn't that what President Biden's policy is trying to do? Again, I mean, we're not saying that there's not a significant burden here. The cost of college is outrageous, but there's nothing in here to control that cost. And again, I think we can get a significant way down the road by allowing them to renegotiate down their the interest rates and put some money uh, into their pocket. And again, there's a lot of other people out here that uh, you know are doing everything right as well. So if it's part of a broader package, we could certainly talk about it. That's why I think a tax cut for all working people or medical debt, which isn't directly linked to somebody uh, who goes to college. I mean, I think we've got to have a broader package here and I would certainly support something like that. But I think the general tax cut's the best way to go. Yeah. So the common theme with liberals who are opposed to this is to not necessarily say dumb things, but just to be more disingenuous, pretend as if you're flanking or outflanking Biden from the left and um, supporting more things that are good. So don't support student debt cancellation because you could support this other good thing. Uh, OK, first of all, I'm all for it. Why can't we do both? Paul Begala pointed out, you know, for that amount of money, you can fund free pre-K for every three and four year old for 10 years. You could forgive all medical debt. Great. Let's do that then. You see, except if Biden did do that, he would be against it. Guarantee it. Because Paul Begala is one of the dumbest people in American politics. And for some reason, mainstream media still invites him on because they feel as if he has commentary that is worthwhile or compelling. But in actuality, he's just a talking point machine for whatever industry wants to fuck over Americans the most. And by him saying, oh, well, Biden, you know, we could just forgive medical debt. That is so disingenuous because, first of all, I support medical debt forgiveness. But Paul Begala knows that the president 
can't really just do that. It's more complicated. The reason why Biden can uh, cancel student debt with the stroke of a pen is because the federal government holds most student debt. But when it comes to medical debt, who holds medical debt? It's private insurance companies. Now, if Paul Begala wants to join me in calling for them to all be abolished, then you know, that's one way we can tackle it. If those, if those, you know, blood sucking health insurance companies no longer exist, then the government can take action. There can be a bill to demand the cancellation of all medical debt. Make sure that that's written in law. But he's saying, oh, we'll see how Biden is canceling student debt, but not medical debt. He doesn't think that your medical debt is as important. So what he's trying to do pretty transparently is pit working class people against each other pit student debt holders against medical debt holders when medical debt is absolutely egregious as well. And we should get rid of all of these perverted predatory debts that the American people are plagued with. But he wouldn't support that if Biden proposed, you know, um, some type of plan or told Congress to get him a single payer health care bill. It never happened, but get him a single payer health care bill to his desk. Do you want to know who would be against that? Paul Begala, and yet he's pretending to care about medical debt. No, all of these disgusting debts should be canceled. Now, Tim Ryan, you know, he just a couple of years ago supported, you know, student debt uh, alleviation, but now he's against it. And he also, you know, he, he cited medical debt there, a tax cut for medical debt when it should just be canceled. No tax cuts, no bullshit, just cancel it. But he also once supported Medicare for all. But then when he ran for president in 2020, he came out against it and claimed that even though he co-sponsored that legislation, he would have voted against it if, you know, it came up for a vote. So I don't know what people like Tim Ryan are doing. He is in a contested race against J.D. Vance, who is a psychopath. So as much as I fucking despise Tim Ryan, I hate J.D. Vance more. And I think he's extremely dangerous to democracy and will further exacerbate extremism within the GOP. But yet Tim Ryan, it's like he's trying to lose. He's trying to go against what is the most popular. Now, these liberals claim that it's bad policy, bad politics, Paul Begala especially. Well, let's take a look at that, actually, because we have some data to back up my argument, not his. As Truth outrights, Biden's rating hits highest point in months after student debt plan announcement. Now, Sharon Zhang explains, CBS YouGov polling released on Sunday shows that Biden's job rating among registered voters is now at 45%, up from 42% in July. Overall, 20% of respondents said they strongly approve of Biden's performance, while 25% said they somewhat approve. The poll was taken between August 24th and 26th. Biden announced the plan midday on the 24th, meaning that some respondents may have answered the survey before the announcement. This is the highest the president's approval has been since February, according to CBS and YouGov. Most of the gain came from Democrats, with the amount of Democrats who say they strongly approve of Biden's job performance increasing by eight points since July. He's also seen gains among young people, among whom his approval is now in the positives. So just pause for a moment. Biden has been struggling to win over young people. We've seen all the headlines about how he's sinking with regard to young people. And now that he finally does something to deliver for mostly young people, well, he's seeing his approval rating increase. Now, it's correlated with student debt cancellation, but we don't necessarily know if it's caused by student debt cancellation, but it's logical to assume that that is indeed the case. But now all of these same outlets who wrote about how Biden is struggling with young voters 
are posting columns about how bad his student debt cancellation plan is. The entire Washington Post editorial board came out against this plan. So they're all against it. But yet, polls show it's very popular. Now, Emerson College released a poll showing that, yeah, it's pretty fucking popular. Only 21% of 18 to 34 year olds think that his plan was too giving, indicating that they don't support it, compared to the 79% of 18 to 34 year olds who either say it didn't go far enough or was just right, indicating that they are supportive of student debt cancellation. Now, between 35 and 49 year olds, only 27% say that it's too much. 37% want him to go even further. 35% say that it's just right. 50 to 64 year olds, a plurality say that it's too much, but still nearly a quarter of boomers at 23% say that it doesn't go far enough and 37% support Biden's action. Now, finally, and unsurprisingly, people 65 and older do not support this. A majority are against it, but yet still 48% show some level of support for debt cancellation with 16% saying that it doesn't go far enough. So this policy is broadly popular and it has support among the entire voting demographic. So for these people, like Paul Begala, who claim that it's bad politics, they're just lying at this point. They're just lying. And look, these polls are just recent, but polls have consistently shown majority support for student debt cancellation, even a lot of support among Republicans and especially younger Republicans. So Ted Cruz, as dumb as he is, is the only one who is being honest. Yeah, this could actually motivate people to come out to the polls, but liberals are disingenuously claiming, mm, actually, people are going to be really mad about this. No, actually, I cannot stand Joe Biden. I supported Bernie Sanders in 2020, but I support this move. And even if he didn't go far enough, him canceling $20,000 worth of my student debt, that makes me want to support him even more, at least temporarily, just because these GOP fuckheads and some liberals are coming out against him. And that's what they're going to do. Him doing something popular and then getting attacked for it is going to cause people to rally around him because they want to defend this action. So that way, the message that he gets is, oh, OK, this is actually good. Maybe the mainstream media isn't representative of the general public. So uh, I, I, I tortured you, right, with the Republicans, with the liberals who are against this. But now we're going to have a little bit of a palate cleanser. I want to share what Bernie Sanders and Nina Turner had to say, especially Nina Turner, because she basically addressed all of the talking points that we've seen. And with both of them, uh, what they have to say is incredibly valuable. And, and most importantly, they're correct. I know it is shocking, George, to some Republicans uh, that the government actually on occasion does something to benefit working families and low-income people. Uh, I don't hear any of these Republicans squawking when we give massive tax breaks to billionaires, when we have an effective tax rate today, such that the 1% have a lower effective tax rate uh, than working people. We have major corporations in a given year don't pay a nickel in federal taxes. That's okay. But suddenly when we do something for working people, uh, it is a terrible idea. I was in uh, Boston last week and I was talking to nurses. And these nurses were telling me that they are working, in some cases, two jobs, outrageous hours, partly in order to pay for uh, the student debts that they have accumulated. Uh, so in my view, the president did a, the right thing. Uh, and we have got to be really thinking about higher education in general. And in my view, uh, at a time when hundreds of thousands of bright young people can't even afford to go to college, if we're going to be competitive in a global economy, 
Uh, we need to make public colleges and universities tuition free. And, and listen, the $10,000 worth of forgiveness that uh, President Biden just recently announced, it's a great start, but it is not the end. It's the floor. It's not the ceiling. And mm -hmm. even as we know, I mean, the stats that you just displayed, the average debt for African-Americans, particularly African-American women, $52,000, the average white student between eight and $12,000, that $10,000 hardly meets the need. So it is structural in nature and mm -hmm. it needs to be changed. So this is a small step, but it is a step nonetheless. How far will this new program help, do you think? I mean, it helps somewhat. It's means tested. That means that you're leaving a whole bunch of people out. And it should be canceling student debt for all so that nobody is left out, so that no one feels as though they did not get the relief that they deserve. It is hurting working class and working poor. And we know many students who start college don't even finish so when, the, when you have people like the GOP using the working class, the truck driver, the farmer, assuming that a truck driver and a farmer did not go to college, a lot of those people go to college, a lot of their children go to college. Why? Because they're trying to obtain the American dream. And that is being a douse because this debt is so, you, you just can't keep up. You know, I've heard stories of people paying on this debt over and over and over again, and they can't catch up because the interest rates People owe more. A lot of people owe more uh, because of the interest rates uh, than when they than what they borrowed. So it, yeah. it the, the structure in this country needs to be changed, and it can be changed. And not only but should let, all let me just changed. let me just jump in because you talked about the Republicans' response to this. I mean, there are plenty of, of folks out there, not not just Republicans, who say, "Listen, I paid off my student loans. Why should these guys get a freebie?" And you know, perhaps cynically, just before midterms. I mean, we heard uh, Mitch McConnell call this a uh, a slap in the face to every family who sacrificed to save for college, every graduate who paid their debt, and and there's also the argument um, that you sort of talked about, the pe people who actually didn't go to college there, they're, they're now paying with their taxes for student loans they never got. So what do you say to that? No tax, no tax. Taxes are not going up over this. So it is a straight up lie for the Republicans to be out there talking about tax dollars are going up. That's number one, um, that, that somebody's taxes are going up. Number two, this us versus them is the problem. In the United States of America, we pay for K through 12 education. So for example, my son is no longer in high school, but guess what? My property taxes still go to pay for the education of somebody else's child. Why? Because it is indeed a public good. So we need a total paradigm shift in this country to go from pre-K to college as a public good, as a social right. And then lastly, for Senator Mitch McConnell, I didn't hear all of this bravado when it came to the, the PPP loans being relieved. I didn't hear all of this bravado when it came to the Trump tax cuts that went overwhelmingly to the wealthiest people of this country to the tune of $1.9 trillion. We have an opportunity in this country to give relief to 45 million people and their family and their closest friends. Why wouldn't we make that kind of investment? So that divide and conquer tactic that the GOP is using, I'm hoping that the American people is not will not buy into it because it's not us versus them. We are them. And it is all of us. As Nina Turner pointed out, we need a paradigm shift, right? Even though maybe we don't have kids that go to school, our property taxes still benefit public education. Even if, you know, I am not going to drive on every single road in the state of Oregon, I'm fine with my tax dollars going towards roads 
We live in a society, people. I mean, this is just part of the social contract. We pull our resources to build a better country. And the paradigm shift is needed so that we don't think about education as just being K through 12. We think about education as being K through college because that's what's needed since a majority of employers require a college degree in this day and time. So to you know attack people and further punish them for trying to better themselves is incredibly disgusting. So shame on all of the Republicans, shame on all of the liberals who came out against this. People like Bernie Sanders and Nina Turner are 100% correct. This is not just good policy, it's good politics as well. I would say this, I like conservatives. I like hanging out with conservatives. I like debating conservatives. I never find a rude conservative. It's almost impossible to find. I get nothing but love from conservatives. I spoke, you know this, I spoke at Liberty University, the largest evangelical uh, Christian conservative Christian college in America. I spoke in front of 14,000 people. You've done the exact same gig. These people know my views. They know I'm married to a man. I got a standing ovation. They couldn't have been nicer. I wandered around campus for a couple hours. People coming up to me saying all sorts of nice things. By the way, some people did come up to me and say, you know, I'm praying for you. And I don't know if they meant that I'm praying for you, meaning I'm trying to pray the gay away or I'm just praying like your continued success or whatever. But it would almost be irrelevant to me. Even if someone- yeah, if someone, I'm praying the gay away. Well, that's not offensive. If they're not saying I'm going to, you know, come me over the, me head. over the head, yeah. we're going to put you put you somewhere you shouldn't be. I'm, yeah. pray, I'm praying for you. And, and by the like, way, okay, I someone, can deal with that. Someone that comes up to you with a smile on their face and says a bunch of nice things and then says, and I'm praying for you. Right. That's actually a lot nicer nice. than, than a progressive who will scream all day how much they love gay people and then will- unleash endless hate on me because I don't bow to them. So, you know, this is where this idea of tolerance and all of these things, I think, I think broadly speaking, conservatives have done a really nice job in the last couple of years of cleaning up whatever those bad parts are. The point is that um, conservatives still often, I think, should take the libertarian approach on it, be okay with a state-by-state situation, but there's still a, a certain layer of conservatives that take a sort of more moral position and on I, it you know and I, that it's going to infect society. And by the way, I'm not trying to change those people's opinions. That's the part that I really want to tell you. That, that's I'm it, not here to do change that. that. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I, I just want to carve with, out um, room on the same side. As you can see, Dave Rubin is apparently still in denial about the GOP's homophobia. Now, if he were making this argument in, say, 2017, 2020, maybe even 2021, not necessarily, but maybe, then his argument would have a little bit more legs. But after the GOP collectively chose to make anti-LGBTQ plus hate their main focus in 2022, after he was dragged through the mud by his own fans after announcing that him and his husband were having two children, to make this argument, it just feels extra disgusting. And let's be really clear here. If he were simply downplaying the extent to which the modern Republican Party is homophobic, that would be gross. But he's just pretending as if it's not an issue. And why is he doing this? Because he's craven. He will do anything to advance his own career. And look, he doesn't have to do this, right? There are some conservatives who are in that movement, but yet they don't drink all of the Kool-Aid, right? They don't follow along with every single talking point. Adam Kokesh, for example, was a libertarian YouTuber, and he would confront individuals like Stephen Crowder about his refusal to support marijuana legalization. The question is, where's Adam Kokesh now? I mean, I think he's still around making YouTube videos, but you can't really advance on the right unless 
you go all in, right? It's like a funnel. You can kind of swirl around the top, but ultimately, if you want to make it, you're going to go to that same path. You're going to be all pro, you know, uh, evangelical. You're going to be gung-ho for taking away other people's rights. You just cross your fingers and hope that you're not next if you're Dave Rubin. But he's in denial, and he says here that, you know, he's never found a rude conservative. That's a really stupid argument to make because as a leftist, I've met other rude leftists. So why are you, like, going out of your way to portray conservatives as, like, these angels? Nobody believes that. Nobody believes that you've never met a rude conservative. All you have to do is read the comment section on your YouTube video when you announced that you and your husband were having children. But he says, uh, I've never met a rude, never found a rude conservative. It's almost impossible to find. I get nothing but love from conservatives. Do you, Dave? Do you? We all know that you know that that's not true. As you were almost brought to tears when your own colleague, Glenn Beck, said, that your homosexuality was comparable to his alcoholism in his family. You've never never met a rude conservative, though. Now, his evidence for that is that he spoke to a crowd of 14,000 people at uh, Liberty University. Whoop-de-fucking-do. I mean, if your evidence uh, for tolerance is that, like, they didn't call you the F-slur, I mean, I feel like you, you need more, right? <laughs> you need more than that. And look, that's an anecdote. And what he doesn't understand is that the extent to which conservatives will tolerate homosexuality is indeed limited. They tolerate it insofar as he uses his identity to whitewash and legitimize homophobia. So if Dave Rubin can come out and say, you know, Ron DeSantis' Don't Say Gay Bill isn't actually homophobic, I know I'm a homosexual, then they support that. But the second you start trying to humanize yourself, talking about your personal life and the fact that you and your husband want to have children, that's when their tolerance dries up. And he saw this firsthand, but he's still saying they're more tolerant than anyone else. You can never find a rude conservative. Just preposterous shit here. I mean, it's, it's, it's embarrassing. It's comical. He also says, people did come up to me and say, I'm praying for you. Now, I don't know if they meant praying away the gay or praying for your continued success. Which one do you think it is, Dave? Which one? Now look, to be fair, I was in the evangelical movement growing up. I was a kid, I had no choice, all right? Blame my parents, not me, but they've, you know, uh, my mom is out of that too. Um, but either way, like there were conservatives who would just pray for everyone, right? That's what they do. But is there a substantial, perhaps majority of them who claim that they're praying for him with the intent of praying away the gay? Obviously, obviously, they don't think that him being gay is acceptable. Again, they'll tolerate it to an extent, but they know that that is not the ideal. And as someone who says, you know, right-wing talking points, they would prefer that he were straight. Now, Candace Owens claims, well, even if they were saying that they're like, or even if they were praying away the gay specifically, uh, that's not offensive because they're not threatening to stone him. Is that the standard where it's only offensive if they call for your death? Actually, yes, Candace, it is offensive if they're praying away the gay for Dave Rubin. And Dave Rubin should have pushed back. He knows that that's offensive. Because what are you doing if you are praying away the gay? Even though praying is meaningless, it doesn't matter. You're talking to yourself. But I mean, the, the intent there is that they don't think that you are valid as you are. They don't accept you in your current state. They think that you're inherently defective. Therefore, for you to reach the ideal and beyond their status, you have to be straight. 
And Dave Rubin knows what that means. That means that in order for him to be ideal in their eyes, he'd have to leave his husband. He'd have to give his children away to a nice, loving, straight Christian couple. To say, I'm praying for you to not be gay is inherently hateful because you're saying, I don't support you. It's like one step worse than those people who are like, look, I, I love gay people, okay? I don't hate the sinner, I hate the sin. So it's like, oh, okay, so being gay is a sin, that's, that's pretty fucked up. Loving somebody of the same gender is sinful. To love is sinful. Does that not seem like a contradiction? But again, like don't try to quiz conservatives or Christians about the Bible or try to, you know, uh, pretend as if they're consistent because we all know that that's not the case. Uh, moving on. So Dave Rubin actually claims it's not the right, but the liberals, they're the ones who unleashed hate on him because he doesn't bow to them. Okay, first of all, we unleash hate on you and not necessarily hate, but we make fun of you to be specific and more charitable to us because you use your gay identity to further legitimize the subjugation of your own commu community to second-class citizenship status. You use your status as a member of the LGBTQ community as confirmation that everything that they're doing is acceptable, right? So if the GOP passes laws that are homophobic, you can come out there and say, it's not homophobic. And then everyone on the right can point to you as evidence that the GOP is not homophobic. Do you understand why that's a problem? You're weaponizing your own identity against your own community. That's why we don't like you. It's not because you don't bow to us. You can disagree with us on economics or healthcare, and we'd push back against that. We think that your arguments are silly because Dave Rubin isn't necessarily bright. But the reason why you're a target of the left is because it's so insidious what you're doing. You're throwing your own community under a bus for personal advancement, and I don't know how you sleep with yourself at night. Now, he had the audacity to claim here that when it comes to tolerance, conservatives uh, have done a really nice job over the years of cleaning up whatever the bad parts are. He's saying this in the year 2022, in the year of our Lord and Savior. 2022 has been a record-breaking year for anti-LGBTQ plus legislation. This is data from the ACLU as of July 1st, and as you can see, they've placed restrictions on trans athletes, school curriculums, gender-affirming healthcare for trans youth, religious or First Amendment exemptions that allow for discrimination against queer people, and more. Now, in July, 10 anti-gay laws targeting schools went into effect. 10. That's double digits. Now, overall, the GOP censorship crusade, specifically against schools, led to a 250% spike in school gag order proposals with bills more punitive than those introduced in 2021. But he says, nope, they've done a really good job at like making it seem as if they're really more accepting of queer people. Really? I mean, if you want to try to do apologia for the GOP and make it seem as if they're accepting of gay people, you can't be that hyperbolic. Like, that's bad propaganda. Like, Tucker Carlson, I hate him, but he does good propaganda, right? He allows for some plausible deniability, concedes some arguments to the left. But Dave Rubin is a bad propagandist, right? What he does is he'll make claims that are so hyperbolic that makes it just seem laughable, where nobody can take him seriously who's serious anyways. Now, you know, the right will fall for what he says because he's saying what they want him to say, like a good little stooge, like a good little parrot. But overall, for you to claim, oh, like they, lately they've done so great at not being homophobic, 
when they've introduced literally hundreds of anti-LGBTQ plus bills, this is why the left makes fun of you because you're such a craven opportunist that you make yourself look like a fucking idiot. Now, he says he thinks conservatives should take a more libertarian approach on gay issues, but for those who don't, he's not trying to change those people's positions. Now, why would he say this? Well, of course, it's for self-interest. He knows that he'd be fucked if, you know, the Supreme Court were to overturn marriage equality. He'd be fucked if the GOP continued down this trajectory with borderline genocidal rhetoric against queer people. He would be fucked even more if this groomer talk continued now that he's going to be a parent. So he has that level of self-interest, right? He's gay and he doesn't want to leave that gay lifestyle, but he knows that, you know, one day it may come to that where he may not be accepted by this movement. So he's, you know, he's being honest there a little bit saying, I, I hope that they take a libertarian approach. But of course, I wouldn't try to change those people's opinions. Why? Is that not permissible in conservative circles? I mean, is debate and dialogue, the free exchange of ideas, which you love apparently, is that not permitted in those circles? They can disagree with you, sure, but why wouldn't you even try to change those opinions? Not only is that cuck shit, but it's pathetic. If you actually think that being conservative entails supporting queer people and being pro-freedom for queer people, then why wouldn't you change their minds? Why wouldn't you try to push them in the correct position or direction rather it's because dave rubin he doesn't want to upset the apple cart too much he knows that he's on thin ice with conservatives just by being gay and in a gay marriage but for him to have children that was the straw that broke the camel's back for a lot of conservatives especially given the rhetoric that they've been using lately pretending as if every single gay person is a danger to children and they shouldn't be around queer people. So now he has to make it seem as if, oh my God, please accept me. I promise you I'm not trying to change your opinion. I promise you I will bow to you at every step of the way. I'll kiss your feet if you want to. Just please let me exist in this space and continue to at least be myself at home. But, you know, that can only be the norm for him for so long, considering where they're going. I mean, again, it's getting scary, the rhetoric that the right is using, but yet he's still in this day and age at this time in 2022, denying that there's any issue there. It's truly just, it's embarrassing, it's sick, it's craven, but it's very on brand for a grifter like Dave Rubin.
You just watched some of the destruction caused by catastrophic flooding taking place all across Pakistan. And currently 33% of the country is experiencing flooding and tens of millions of citizens have been displaced as a result of flooding. We're looking at a humanitarian disaster on a massive scale. And to really put things into perspective, I wanna look at some satellite images taken on August 28th that really capture the sheer enormity of the flooding. This is courtesy of Axios. So as you can see here, these are village fields in Rajanpur, and these were taken by Maxar. And you can see the village before flooding. And then after flooding, the entire village is nearly submerged with water coming up to the buildings. Now here's another look at fields in Rajanpur just completely devastating on an unfathomable scale. Now, this was the Indus River before and after flooding. As you can see, massive difference. Now, finally, these are fields and homes along the Indus River in Rajhan. And it's been a catastrophe, needless to say. And I just want to emphasize this is an ongoing disaster. And this is a climate change-induced disaster. Now, for more details, we go to Common Dreams, where Julia Conley explains, with hundreds of thousands of people displaced, more than 4 million crops destroyed, and nearly a million homes demolished or severely damaged, Pakistani officials and rights campaigners on Monday called for a major international aid push following flooding throughout the country, fueled by the fossil fuel-driven climate emergency and an unprecedented season of monsoon rains. More than 30 million people are in urgent need of help, the International Rescue Committee said, after conducting a rapid needs assessment three days after the Pakistani government declared the flooding, which has killed more than 1,000 people, a national emergency. Both the IRC and government officials have explicitly linked the flooding to the climate crisis with IRC country director Shabnam Balak noting, despite producing less than 1% of the world's carbon footprint, the country is suffering the consequences of the world's inaction and stays in the top 10% countries facing the consequences amid a monsoon season, which has so far seen 784 percent and 500 percent more rains than average in Sindh and Balochistan provinces, respectively. The IRC is anticipating a sharp rise in food insecurity as 71 percent of Pakistanis surveyed by the group are already without access to sufficient clean drinking water. So to say that the situation is bad is an understatement. Now here's some facts. These are just preliminary statistics, all subject to change. These are estimates. So take all of them with a grain of salt by the time that you see the, this video. These will likely have been revised. But here's what we, what we know so far. As the article pointed out, more than 1,000 people have been killed. I believe the current estimate is around 1,400, but again, that's just an approximation. Take that with a grain of salt. Uh, over 30 million people have been displaced. The highest estimate that I've seen is 50 million. Now, we, when you consider that the total population of Pakistan is 226 million as of 2020, we're looking at almost a quarter of their entire population being displaced. Imagine how many people this affected. It's just, it's hard to grasp how bad this is. Um, as I stated earlier, 33% of the entire country has been flooded. 63% of pregnant and lactating women are considered extremely vulnerable. 40% of people don't have access to critical health care, which is something that is a necessity at this time, considering the fact that IRC reports that they're seeing increase in um, skin infections, malaria, and cases of people having diarrhea. 
So it's it's bad. Now, I want to go to a statement from Pakistani's climate minister because what they say is really important. Pakistani climate minister Sherry Raymond did not mince words Monday as she pointed out the link between the climate crisis and the suffering of the tens of millions of people directly affected by the flooding. Quote, this is very far from a normal monsoon season. It is a climate dystopia at our doorstep, Raymond told agents France Press. We are at the moment at the ground zero of the front line of extreme weather events in an unreliable cascade of heat waves, forest fires, flash floods, multiple glacial lake outbursts, flood events, and now the monster monsoon of the decade is wreaking nonstop havoc throughout the country. And she's absolutely correct. Now, the problem is that things like this, extreme weather events, are going to get a lot worse, especially considering a study that was released on Monday, which essentially states that the rise of ocean sea levels is accelerating. The Washington Post explains human-driven climate change has set in motion massive ice losses in Greenland that couldn't be halted even if the world stopped emitting greenhouse gases today, according to a study published Monday. The findings in the journal Nature Climate Change project that it is now inevitable that 3.3% of the Greenland ice sheet will melt, equal to 110 trillion tons of ice, the researchers said, that will trigger nearly a foot of global sea level rise. So what we're seeing in Pakistan, this is just the beginning. It's going to get worse. So when their uh, climate minister says that this is a climate-induced dystopia, they're absolutely correct about that. And as the Common Dreams article stated, they are responsible for 1% of global greenhouse gas emissions. But countries that have benefited from industrialization and emitting the most CO2, like the United States, I think we bear a lot of responsibility for this. So we absolutely should be sending them aid and doing what we can to assist them. Because again, this is a humanitarian crisis on a huge, huge scale. And it's just, I don't know what to say about this. It's... It's not like this is a one-off event where you can say, wow, this is unfortunate, but thankfully this isn't very frequent. Unfortunately, this is going to be a common phenomenon in our climate dystopian future. Now, if you want to take action and help, I'm going to link you to the International Rescue Committee where you can donate. And thank you to Emo Dragon on Twitter for recommending this organization. They're going to need all the help that they can get. So if you can chip in a buck or two, then that will be much appreciated, I'm sure. So that's where we're at, where... Now, in this day and age, you can no longer deny the reality of anthropogenic climate change. It's right here, and it's affecting people in a substantial way. So anyone currently who still is denying the reality of climate change, like Tucker Carlson, who just did that the other day on his program, who said global cooling is the real issue, these people now are enemies of humanity. They don't care about the suffering. And as the Washington Post article citing that nature climate change study pointed out, even if we stopped all greenhouse gas emissions today, we're still going to see the sea level rise. So what we've done is irreparable harm to our planet. The best that we can do now at this state is try to mitigate some of the damage, but we're still not taking this seriously. Thankfully, the Democratic Party just passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which does provide funding to invest in clean, green technology. The problem is that we're still not taking this seriously when we see goals about reducing, you know, greenhouse gas emissions to 2005 levels, 40 percent of 2005 levels, whatever that may be. We need to stop emitting greenhouse gas now, like yesterday. 
but we, we're not doing that. And that's just at this point in time, it's not going to happen. So if we're not going to take action, then we have to assist the countries and the islands uh, that are going to experience this because it's going to be devastating. It is literally going to kill countless people. So if we're not going to do anything, we at least need to take responsibility and assist them and provide them with immediate aid because this cannot stand. We cannot just allow them to suffer and do nothing when they didn't contribute as much as we did to this current crisis. I mean, they barely contributed, comparatively speaking. So we've got to do what we can to help them. And the U.S. government needs to take action right now. Former President Donald Trump has been psychoposting on the main. So over the course of last night and this morning, he made more than 60 posts on Truth Social. Not all of them were unique posts. Some of them were retweets or retruths, whatever he's calling it. Um, and most of them were innocuous right wing memes or graphics saying that they support Donald Trump. Uh, but some of these posts were absolutely disturbing and deranged, and they require our attention simply because this isn't just a former president, but this is the front runner for the Republican Party for the 2024 presidential election. Somebody who's saying these things, I don't want them anywhere near power. And, and like this is comparing him to 2016. The things that he said in 2016 were absolutely disturbing, but it's getting worse and a lot more authoritarian. But first, I want to share something that I think is actually humorous and probably my favorite post from him. He simply asks, why are people so mean? You have an old man <laughs> who's probably the biggest asshole in America asking this question. Why are people so mean? Why are you so mean? Maybe ask yourself that question, Donald Trump, like he's going full emo on Truth Social, and I can't diagnose him over the internet, but having experience with people in my life who have issues with, you know, um, manic depressive disorder or bipolar, it, it seems like he's going through a manic episode of some sorts. Maybe that's not it. Perhaps he's just stressed out over the Mar-a-Lago raid. Either way, he's certainly going through something, and this behavior is really worrying for somebody who could assume a lot of power in the United States. So as you'll remember, on Monday he tweeted or truthed. So now it comes out conclusively that the FBI buried the Hunter Biden laptop story before the election, knowing that if they didn't, Trump would have easily won the 2020 presidential election. Oh, sure. Uh, this massive fraud and election interference at a level never seen before in our country remedy, declare the rightful winner or and this would be the minimal solution, declare the 2020 election irreparably compromised and have a new election immediately. Now, the following day, he doubled down, saying the presidential election was badly and irreparably tainted by the FBI's fake description of the laptop from hell to Facebook and the lamestream media, and for many other reasons as well, declare the rightful winner or hold new election now. Now, I'm not gonna read all of that because he's just rambling at this point, but we have a former president and potentially future president demanding that he be reinstated. Just give him the presidency now. I mean, you could joke about this because he's very clearly throwing a tantrum, but he's demanding that he be reinstated as the president of the United States. And he's saying this seriously. Like, does anybody think that he's being facetious here? No, he's absolutely dead serious about this. Either reinstate me or hold election now. Rehold the election that was held a couple of years ago where he lost. This is absolutely horrifying because he's telling you he wants to be a dictator. He's not saying that explicitly, but 
this is what he wants. He wants absolute power, and he will take that power even if it means completely destroying democracy. That is absolutely horrifying. And sure, we can make fun of Donald Trump for posting so much, whatever, but things like this, they stand out because it's not just him screaming this into the void. This resonates with his supporters who still believe that the election was stolen from him. And it's not the only horrible thing that he did over the course of, of his uh, Truth Social posting spree. So as Politico's Kyle Cheney points out, Trump is spending his morning on Truth Social directly posting 4chan and Q messages a day after calling to be reinstated as president. He's doing explicitly what he used to try to shade or used coded language for. For good measure, he's also promoting a nonsense idea that the FBI and Antifa, not his supporters, stormed the Capitol on January 6th and a completely false claim about Ray Epps' wife and promoting anti-vaccine messaging that includes an obviously fake quote attributed to his daughter, Ivanka Trump. So there's just so much to unpack here. First of all, Trump has never been explicitly anti-vax with respect to the COVID vaccines. I mean, prior to the COVID vaccines, we all know that he did share anti-vaccine rhetoric. But still, when it comes to COVID vaccines, he's been pretty pro-COVID vaccines simply because he's the one who created Operation Warp Speed. Therefore, he wants credit for it. And, you know, he should want to take credit for this because the vaccines have saved millions of lives. But now he's sharing what I think everyone can see is a fake tweet from his own daughter. What? Why are you sharing fake tweets from your own daughter we can see like i'm not related to ivanka trump but i can see that's clearly not the way that she would speak it's fake but he's sharing it and now if you'll remember QAnon, they believed that trump would be reinstated they kept moving the goalpost okay you know he's not president now he's gonna arrest everyone on joe biden's inauguration day that never happened then the date was i think um august or september of 2021 then it was november then december so they kept you know moving the goalpost but consistently a lot of QAnon followers believe that trump was going to be reinstated and now he's saying no i want to be reinstated so he's sharing actual QAnon posts and now he's signal boosting you know them and saying yeah I, I want to be reinstated making them believe that oh maybe his reinstatement is inevitable since he's now calling for it and the effect that this has had on QAnon has of course been that they've been emboldened as nbc news's ben collins explains QAnon forums are obviously ecstatic and bloodthirsty after trump's q endorsing tweet storm this morning they had been relatively dead in the last few months with users headed over to general trump forums and militia slash q influencer telegrams not anymore now QAnon is now a movement that is multi-dimensional but for the most part most of them believe that trump was cheated and they believe that Trump is going to be reinstated at some point, or at a minimum, he should be reinstated. And now, you know, he's sharing them, sharing posts about Q from 4chan screenshots. I don't know if he knows what he's doing, but I suspect that he's probably familiar with the, you know, uh, forums that are propping him up. And now they're emboldened. Again, I just want to remind you, this is the front runner for the 2024 GOP primary. Now, uh, just some additional things that I want to point out. We're not going to dive into these here, but Truth Social was actually blocked by the Google Play Store because they're citing threats of harassment, threats of violence, and unless they moderate that content, well, they can't allow Truth Social to be on the App Store 
because that violates their policies. Now, on top of that, this headline is just very on brand for Donald Trump. Trump never pays his bills. Truth Social reportedly stiffs contractor amid financial disarray. Trump's Twitter knockoff is already in a bitter battle with its web host over $1.6 million in unpaid bills. So that's the least surprising thing ever, but Trump is very clearly unhinged. And this isn't, it's not like he's never a normal functioning adult, if you know what I mean, but there are these periods where he does these tweet storms or truth storms. It's such a stupid fucking name. But where he does this and, and you could just tell he's not in a normal state of mind. I mean, his normal state of mind, his default state of mind is brain worms. But like, this is very clearly different. And again, this is the man who wants the nuclear button. Once again, it's just, it's genuinely disturbing. And the GOP, they're really not sending their best because not only is Trump the front runner, but according to a new Emerson College poll, well, uh, Herschel Walker, somebody who very clearly is mentally incapacitated and should not be in a position of power and influence is now leading in the Georgia Senate race against Raphael Warnock. So folks, it kind of feels like we're fucked, but I'm not gonna lose hope right now. But it just feels like, man, this is who the GOP base is opting for. These are the types of people who they support. Herschel Walker, a violent person who shouldn't, like his family needs to intervene. I'll just say that. Like, I don't want to criticize him too much because it feels like almost gross and ableist. But I mean, he wants to be in a position of power. He can't do, like he cannot do that. He's not fit to serve. And yet the GOP keeps picking people who are mentally unfit to serve. Like these people need help, not power. And that's where we're at, where Trump could be the GOP frontrunner. So like, look, I've gone back and forth between Trump and DeSantis in terms of who's more damaging. And I think that DeSantis could be more effective at implementing his fascistic agenda and convincing normies that what is fascism very clearly is innocuous. But over the course of the last couple of months, it's become more clear that even as damaging as DeSantis is, Trump is just more unhinged, more unfit to serve, more damaging. So, I mean, what do you even say at, at this point in time? I, I don't I don't know what to what to say. What do, we, what do we do? We just have to cross our fingers and hope that the GOP's psychopathic base doesn't opt for this fucking lunatic in 2024. That's where we're at in American democracy. We're hoping that deranged people who are constantly bombarded by right-wing misinformation are going to make the correct decision and opt for somebody slightly less fucking insane than Donald Trump. That's where we're at, really. It's just these things kind of make me feel doomer pilled. So that's why I don't want to dwell on it. But overall, this is maybe the next president of the United States, folks. Just bear that in mind. Children's hospitals across the country have been receiving harassment and even threats of violence after right-wing propagandists have been fear-mongering about the gender-affirming care that said children's hospitals provide to trans youth. Now, that resulted a couple of weeks ago in this. This is an August 17th headline from Vice. Far-right extremists are threatening to execute doctors at a children's hospital. The viral Twitter account Lips of TikTok promoted a lie about gender-affirming care at the hospital, and now doctors are getting death threats. 
threats. Now, Libs of TikTok was temporarily suspended from Twitter for doing just that, and they didn't just target Boston Children's Hospital, they targeted multiple hospitals. But even after being suspended, as Media Matters reports, the owner of the Libs of TikTok account, Chaya Rychik, is vowing to continue targeting hospitals after her suspension is over. Now, even though the Libs of TikTok account specifically instigated all of this and started this campaign, Chaya Rychik did not act alone because right-wing propagandist Matt Walsh also joined in and directly incited harassment against Boston Children's Hospital. Here's a clip that we played on the program from a couple of weeks ago uh, from Media Matters, where he says that they need to take action against Boston Children's Hospital, followed by what happened just a couple of days later after he made those claims. Children's hospitals around the country are butchering, mutilating, and sterilizing their young patients. So according to Boston Children's Hospital, literally every toddler who has ever been born or will ever be born is trans. Now, if it seems like they're casting the widest imaginable net in order to catch the most children they can, and put them all on a path to sterilization and butchery before they can even talk? Well, that's because that's exactly what these monsters are doing. And they've done it up until this moment without much resistance from the public. But that has to end. We have to stop making it so easy on them. And that's why I'm in the very early stages of trying to organize a national coordinated effort to fight back against this evil. You know, it's really just a matter of where do we begin? Maybe we begin at Boston Children's Hospital. Boston Children's Hospital says its staff is being threatened and harassed now after far-right activists on social media posted misinformation claiming they perform gender-affirming hysterectomy procedures on young girls. The hospital says it's not true. They do not perform those procedures for anyone under the age of 18. Boston Children's Hospital says it is proud, though, to be home to the first pediatric and adolescent transgender health program in the United States. The hospital, though, now is working with law enforcement to try to better protect its staff in the face of these lies. So this is very clearly stochastic terrorism, and it hasn't stopped. After doctors received death threats, they haven't stopped targeting doctors individually or different children's hospitals. And now it's all culminated in this. On August 30th, police set up a perimeter around Boston Children's Hospital after a bomb threat was called in. The building had to be sweeped, according to NBC10 Boston. Now, for additional details, NBC News reports the hospital said it is working with law enforcement and outside experts after it received the anonymous bomb threat and it moved quickly to protect patients and employees. Quote, we are relieved no bomb was found and that employees and patients are safe, it said. We remain vigilant in our our efforts to battle the spread of false information about the hospital and our caregivers. We are committed to ensuring the hospital is a safe and secure place for all who work here and come here. We will provide additional information as we are able. The Boston Police Department said it sent in a bomb squad to the Children's Medical Center at about 8.14 p.m., but no suspicious items were recovered or located. Quote, it's still an active investigation, Detective John Boyle said by phone Wednesday morning. Now, thankfully, the bomb threat turned out to be false, but it's not like no harm was done. And one story in particular illustrates how harmful this was. So one woman named Patricia MacArthur Doval, she was forced to leave the hospital while they were doing the bomb sweep. And she explains how she was really scared because she had to leave her baby in the newborn intensive care unit. Couldn't take the baby out. So ask yourself this question, how many surgeries were disrupted. How many parents had to leave their children in their hospital rooms because they couldn't be disconnected 
from life-saving machines. How much harm did this actually cause? Because right-wing propagandists like Lips of TikTok and Matt Walsh worked their supporters into a frenzy thinking that this hospital was actually doing harm to children. No, actually, they're helping children. That's what they're there to do. And now, not only are you stoking harassment and violence against the hospital staff, but you're disrupting procedures, separating parents from their children. So you might ask yourself, well, is Matt Walsh going to come out and say, all right, this has gone too far. I understand that we're all concerned, but perhaps the best way to carry out our anti-trans agenda isn't necessarily targeting literal children's hospitals. Well, no, that's not what he's saying. In fact, he is demanding an apology from the left for daring to blame him for the violence that he stoked against the Boston Children's Hospital. He writes via Twitter, Last night, thousands of idiot leftists were absurdly blaming me and lips of TikTok for a bomb threat at Boston Children's. Today, the story has disappeared because police quickly determined the whole thing was a false alarm. I don't expect we'll get any apologies, though. Hang on a second. You inspired a bomb threat, fake or real, either way, that's harassment. Calling in a bomb threat is a form of terrorism. But yet, because there was no bomb that was found, you're expecting other people to apologize to you? I mean, he's deranged. Matt Walsh is actually deranged. He continues, I would like to know what false alarm means exactly. Police are being coy about it. That's because it's an ongoing investigation, you fucking dipshit. Plenty of reason to wonder whether false alarm really means a leftist hoax. Of course, certainly lots of precedent for that. If there was really a threat but no bomb, they wouldn't call it a false alarm and they would still be trying to track down the culprit. Clearing the scene in two hours and calling it a false alarm almost certainly means there was no threat at all, which still leaves questions. I just read more of the details. Police arrived on the scene at 9.20 and had it cleared by 10 p.m. 40 minutes, becoming increasingly clear there was never any threat. So this is what they're always going to do. If you're wondering, well, what will happen if they end up getting somebody killed because of their rhetoric? Well, they're just going to either claim it was a false flag or blame the left. They will never take responsibility for their stochastic terrorism. It's shocking to me that he has this surprised Pikachu face after for weeks helping to spearhead this campaign against children's hospitals. And we're not just talking about individual hospitals. Like Matt Walsh has been sharing the names of doctors and their pictures, saying that they're butchering tra trans children. It's genuinely stochastic terrorism. And now that somebody called in a bomb threat to further harass and intimidate the hospital because it was a false alarm, well, he's claiming that, you know, no harm was done here. Except I just told you the harm that was done. Even if it was a false alarm, that disrupted operations at this hospital, which is trying to save children's lives, treat cancer patients, do surgeries on children. And because you have an agenda to push and you want to monetize transphobia, you're making it seem as if this hospital is a danger to children when the opposite is true. And now when things escalate even further because of your rhetoric, you're claiming that an apology is owed to you. No, you owe the hospital staff an apology but he's not going to give that. So this hospital staff at this point has been terrorized by Matt Walsh and Libs of TikTok to the point where I think they can demonstrate real harm. They can actually try to go for defamation. And, you know, look, we saw what happened with Alex Jones and the Sandy Hook situation. The parents sued, rightfully so, for defamation because there was real harm done there. He claimed that that was a false flag. The parents had to move. They faced death threats and harassment. 
And now we're seeing that play out again, albeit with children's hospitals, where their operations are being paused so the police can do bomb sweeps because presumably their supporters are the ones who are calling in threats after they've stoked the flames here. So look, I wouldn't blame Boston Children's Hospital or any of these other hospitals if they actually did want to take legal action against Matt Walsh and libs of TikTok. So perhaps what he's saying here by downplaying it and denying it, maybe that's him just trying to defend himself legally. But either way, legal or not legal, this is unethical and disgusting, but they will not stop even if somebody gets seriously hurt. They don't care. Like Matt Walsh is trying to emulate uh, Bill O'Reilly's Tiller Tiller the Baby Killer uh, propaganda that led to an abortion doctor being murdered. He's trying to do that, albeit with a doctor that provides gender-affirming care to trans youth. It's genuinely a sickening campaign, and these people are absolutely ruthless and morally bankrupt. Don't listen to them when they say that they care about children after their supporters are disrupting the services of hospitals that save children's lives. There's a 50% chance, greater than 50% chance that she's going to lose her uterus. There's a 10% chance that she will develop sepsis and herself die. That weighs on me. I voted for that bill. These are affecting people. And we're having a meeting about this. It took that whole week. I did not sleep. Some of you may remember that viral speech by South Carolina State Representative Neil Collins, who was a Republican that expressed regret after he voted for an anti-abortion bill. Now, the reason why we're talking about him again is because I have an update to that particular story. So after he vocalized regret and claimed that his vote kept him up at night, did he choose to pen legislation to undo the damage that he caused? Well, no, unfortunately, he did it again. He voted for another anti-abortion bill. I am not joking about this. So he penned a very lengthy Facebook post. And in it, he talks about a particular bill that he ended up voting for that bans abortion. He explains, for all the above reasons, after hundreds of discussions, hours of thought and prayer, I could not vote for a bill that requires a 12-year-old rape victim to carry. I voted against that bill. That bill failed 47 to 55. I understand I will upset the segment who want a full ban without exceptions. The bill was then moved for reconsideration in which rape and incest exceptions up to 12 weeks were put in. Child support for fathers from date of conception and other cleanup language. The bill protects contraception. IVF, and clearly lists conditions in which mother's life is at risk, hopefully eliminating the 19-year-old situation. We'll talk about that more in a minute. No other amendments passed or would have passed. Criminality on doctors stayed in, which the majority of my constituents approved, but I personally did not. Since exceptions were put in, I voted for the second bill. It passed 67 to 38. I understand I will upset the segment who did not want anything to pass. I knew at the end no one would share a nuanced position. Oh, please. I fully understand the comments are about to be all negative. It's why I led off with something more important than this issue, where we receive our information, how we communicate with each other, and can we return to being a community that knows one another, or do we just tweet insults at one another? I'm trying to do my part to the best of my ability. With that, I'm now humbly your punching bag. So he's trying to portray himself as the victim. Well, I am humbly your punching bag. I'm just doing what I believe is right after speaking with a lot of people. You voted for a ban on abortions at the 12-week mark that also would criminalize doctors 
who perform abortions or who are accused of performing abortions on live fetuses. You learned nothing. You learned absolutely nothing. And he thinks that this bill is reasonable because of the exceptions, but it's not actually. As Jezebel explains, yes, the bill lists miscarriage as one of the several medical conditions that pose a clear risk of death to the pregnant person, but hospitals will still be managing their legal risk for doctors who could be criminally charged for violating the law if it passes and takes effect. Who's to say that hospitals won't delay care for people miscarrying until they're showing signs of infection? And Collins cannot claim that this bill won't force rape survivors, especially child survivors, to carry pregnancies to term. Girls can get their first period and be capable of getting pregnant anywhere from ages 8 to 14, but they may not know the signs of pregnancy. Combine that fact with shame and stigma, and rape survivors may not tell their parents or caretakers they're pregnant until they're much further along than 12 weeks. Exactly. We've talked about these stories on this program where doctors were afraid to do procedures that are effectively abortions on women who had miscarriages because they don't want to be accused of performing an abortion on live fetuses. And he acts as if this bill is reasonable and he made a nuanced decision when you're still saying that the victims of rape are forced to carry their rapist baby to term after the 12-week mark. But yet this is supposed to be applauded because you made a nuanced decision. You talked to a lot of people, literally hundreds of people, agonized over this, you know, for days, spent hours in prayer, but yet you still come out doing the same fucking thing that you expressed regret over just a week or so ago? What is wrong with you? See, this is why I say time and again, you can't reason with forced birthers, because even if they're honest for a second and they admit that what they did was wrong, it's very easy for them to fall back into that trap because they're just not operating with facts and data. Sure, he tried. You can give him credit for talking to people. He consulted with his constituents, presumably, but he's not talking to doctors. He's not talking to women who will be affected by this very clearly. Otherwise, he would have changed his mind. And he shared some of the messages that he received, presumably from his constituents. But, you know, since he went viral, I'm sure that people from around the country reached out to him. Um, and I don't know why he shared these. Perhaps he's sharing this to make it seem as if he's the victim of some sort of a hate campaign. But really what he shared doesn't prove his point. It proves the point of the women who are outraged that he's not listening to them. So let's take a look at some of these texts that he shared. Your crocodile tears are too little too late. You should have listened to women. Another one says, are you able to sleep at night? Your vote hurts more than it helps. You should have listened to the majority of Americans. Your fake tears mean nothing. You know the saying, a day late, a dollar short? You fell short. You stole the future of a 19-year-old with your decision to listen to your beliefs. And the last text here is kind of hard to see, but it's of a woman telling him that she would have died without an abortion. Now, moving on, he shared this text, but forgot to black out their number, so I did. Hopefully, that's just a mistake, and he wasn't intentionally sharing this person's number. Uh, but this person shared an image saying, photo of the exact moment when pro-life Republicans stop giving a fuck about you as a human being. And then this person claims that his daughter is going to be saddened to learn that her father used his political career to, you know, uh, subjugate women to second-class citizenship status. I'm paraphrasing, but you can read it if you want to. Now, this woman explains to him how he personally put that 19-year-old woman in that situation, and he shouldn't be able to sleep ever, 
And you know what? She's right about that. Now, here's another Facebook post from a woman who is rightfully angry, explaining to him that he was told by millions that the bill that he supported was going to kill women, but yet he did it anyway. And she's calling him names, but she's angry because he very much did endanger the lives of women in his state. Now, he also shared posts that people sent him, which were too mean, like his father just passed away recently. And so they're saying, your father is in hell and you're going to join him and something like that. Like, those are mean. Those, those are wrong right? But for him to share those messages from women where they're justifiably outraged, I'm not sure, again, if he wants to portray himself as the victim. But what they're saying, yeah, you should have listened to them because, again, you endangered women's lives and you didn't learn your lesson. You did it again. So how can you expect people to applaud you for this supposedly nuanced position when you claim that your anti-abortion vote endangered the lives of women, but then you voted for a bill that is going to do the same exact thing? Now, if you don't remember specifically what he said, he talks about how the 19-year-old girl um, that he learned about, her life was in danger because of the anti-abortion bill that he supported. Let's watch that one more time to refresh our memories. I voted for the pain-capable bill, the fetal heartbeat bill, and fetal heartbeat has been for six weeks now. The second week that this, that the fetal heartbeat bill became law, a doctor called me out of Anderson. I live in Easley. A 19-year-old girl appeared at the ER. She was 15 weeks pregnant. Her water broke. And the, the fetus was unviable. The standard of care was to advise her uh, that they could extract or she could go home. The attorneys told the doctors that because of the fetal heartbeat bill, because that 15-week-old had a heartbeat, the doctors could not extract. So their only choices were to admit the 19-year-old until that fetal heartbeat stopped. I asked, how long does it take to stop? She said, seconds, minutes, hours, maybe days, or discharge. They discharged that 19-year-old. The doctor told me at that point, there's a 50% chance, well, first, she's going to pass this fetus in the toilet. She's going to have to deal with that on her own. There's a 50% chance, greater than 50% chance, that she's going to lose her uterus. There's a 10% chance that she will develop sepsis and herself die. That weighs on me. I voted for that bill. These are affecting people, and we're having a meeting about this. It took that whole week. I did not sleep. Yeah. So when that exact same thing happens again because of this bill that you supported, are you going to come out and apologize once again and claim that, you know, you couldn't sleep at night because of the predicament that you put women in with your vote? Only to uh, once again backtrack and support an anti-abortion bill after that. I mean, look, to be to be fair to him, if he didn't support this, the bill still would have passed because it was voted overwhelmingly in favor, you know, by this Republican-controlled legislature. But still, to make this bold statement saying that you felt regret over the bill that you supported only to do the same thing. I mean, look, I applaud people for having a change of heart. I don't want to shame people for being wrong if they change their mind. But you don't get credit 
if you claim that you did a wrong thing, but then you repeat that same mistake. You get credit when you learn from your mistake. If you introduce legislation to undo the damage that you caused with that vote, then you'd get credit. But this is why many people were skeptical of you when your speech went viral, because even though people like myself gave you credit for admitting that you were wrong, still, what really matters, the way that you measure if you feel bad is changing the laws, introducing legislation, fighting on behalf of people who believe women should control their own bodies. But you didn't do that. You went in the opposite direction. So again, when you learn that your bill, that your vote for this legislation endangered more women, we told you so. And you very clearly didn't learn your lesson. So perhaps, you know, people in your district, they need someone who's a little bit more decisive and actually knows the effect that their votes will have on their constituents because this isn't no simple matter this is a matter of life and death literally and the way that you express regret but then do the same fucking thing is truly gross and embarrassing you should be embarrassed neil collins Longtime viewers of the show know that I've been critical of J.K. Rowling for a very long time, and this is because I believe that her obsession with trans people is not only weird, but extremely harmful. It's not like she's saying these transphobic things into the void. She is basically nonstop dogging on trans people, attacking gender-affirming care, making it seem as if they're inferior to her audience of millions and millions of people. And when you have a platform that large, what you say holds a lot of weight. So maybe somebody who wasn't necessarily predisposed to not like trans people might start saying transphobic things because they respect you and they're a fan of yours. So I've been critical of her, as have thousands of other people. And it seems as if this criticism has led to her writing a book. And when we look at the book in question, perhaps there should be a page in there where you see my name as well as Vasha's name in the dedication section specifically for inspiration. But I'll let you decide. Let's look at this particular book here. So Cheyenne Browntree of the Rolling Stone writes, Although J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series was rooted in fantasy and make-believe, the author seems to be drawing inspiration from something a little more realistic for her latest book, her own life. Rowling's new novel, The Black Ink Heart, part of her crime thriller series, Carmoran Strike, and penned under the pseudonym Robert Galbraith, involves a storyline that appears to mirror Rowling's public downfall after she continually made statements that have been widely condemned as transphobic. In her new book, Rowling introduces readers to Eddie Ledwell, a creator of a popular YouTube cartoon who sees internet trolls and her own fandom turn on her after the cartoon was criticized as being racist and ableist as well as transphobic for a bit about a hermaphrodite worm. The creator is doxxed with photos of her home plastered on the internet, subjected to death and rape threats for having an opinion, and was ultimately found stabbed to death in a cemetery. The book takes a clear aim at social justice warriors and suggests that Ledwell was a victim of a masterfully plotted, politically fueled hate campaign against her. So what's the overall message of this book? The message is that it's not necessarily the oppressed who we should worry about. It's the oppressors. They're the ones who are actually oppressed. And the individuals who are spewing hate, well, they oftentimes can be the victims of hate to the point where they could be killed. Now look, it's fiction, perhaps loosely based on reality, but the overall message is to essentially portray people who are concerned with 
racism, concerned about ableism and transphobia as the real bad guys. So this is kind of mirroring her own experience. She's often portrayed herself as the victim. So it's obvious that Eddie Ledwell, you know, is very similar to her. She's obsessed with trans people. It's so weird. Now, she claims that this is not actually based on her life. And I don't believe her. Many people don't. But she says that she actually wrote the first draft before she was called out for transphobia. So it's simply a coincidence. Sure, Joanne. I don't believe her. I don't think many people believe her. But the book gets even more strange. So Nathan J. Robinson tweets, I realize J.K. Rowling's new novel might seem a little long at 1,200 pages, but a good portion of the space is taken up by fictitious mean tweets. So as you can see, there's plenty of examples here, but there's more. So here's a sample page from the novel where indeed it's just basically mean tweets. He adds, this is what happens when a novelist spends too much time on social media. Now, I've got to ask the question, as somebody who reads a lot of novels, who would want to read that? Like, I, I read almost every night before I go to bed. I can't imagine enjoying that. Like, who would want to read mean, fake tweets? I mean, look, and she pretends like she's the victim here. No, you got criticism because you're saying hateful things. We all see hate tweets. If you have a Twitter account, you're going to see mean tweets, hateful tweets. But in this instance, it's not like people were just being mean to her, assuming that, that she did write this book, you know, about herself. It's not like they were just mean to her because, you know, we all just hate J.K. Rowling. No, it's the content. It's what you say about trans people that's damaging. Now, let's go back to why I said at the beginning of this video, perhaps myself and Vosh should be in the uh, dedications page because um, she saw some mean tweets and specifically she saw my mean tweet so here's what i said about my back and forth with jk rowling back on april 4th so she wrote history will judge whether dr david bell was a hateful transphobe or trying to alert people to a medical scandal but he's far from the only health professional raising these concerns and i have the letters and emails to prove it now we're not going to get too deep into his arguments here but basically in essence his argument is that these doctors they are uh too flippantly diagnosing young people with gender dysphoria perhaps they're just gay or lesbian and not actually you know experiencing gender dysphoria on top of that uh he claims essentially that more trans people are getting this diagnosis or excuse me more autistic people are getting this gender uh, dysphoria diagnosis uh, so suggesting that autistic people are being taken advantage of. Nice ableism there, by the way. Um, no, actually, this isn't really an issue. People who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria, by and large, that's a correct diagnosis. So let's actually look at some facts really quickly here. So 97% of trans people are happy with their transition. And in the UK, JK Rowling's country, the regret rate is 0.47%. I repeat, 0.47%. So doctors are overwhelmingly getting their diagnosis of gender dysphoria correct, but he's pretending as if this is some big issue when it's not. Now, the reason why he's claiming this is an issue and he's fashioning himself as a sort of whistleblower is because He's anti-trans, quite literally. This is an anti-trans charlatan 
who doesn't think that kids should get gender-affirming care. He's in lockstep with Republicans in the United States. And people politely responded to J.K. Rowling and tried to point this out. For example, Aaron wrote, Joanne, you are literally pushing a conversion therapist. He belongs to an organization calling for 100% detransition that calls each youth who goes on to transition a failure that seeks to eliminate youth transition that calls HRT opposite-sex imitation medicine. Now, this person noted that he lacks the credentials that he claims to have. Bell has not actually worked clinically with trans people. He has no relevant expertise. He was a staff governor with no clinical involvement and is facing disciplinary procedure. So ask yourself this question, why wouldn't J.K. Rowling tweet out the peer-reviewed studies that show that gender-affirming care for young people saves lives? It's medically necessary. It reduces rates of depression and suicidality. Why would she tweet out this one quack? who's a bigot, it's because he's confirming her transphobic point of view. Now, people try to engage uh, respectfully. I, for one, I don't engage respectfully with uh, transphobes and homophobes because I'm of the belief that civil rights are not debatable, even though it technically is debatable in certain countries politically. But I don't think that they're debatable. So my goal is to just insult them until they shut the fuck up. And I want to make it socially unacceptable for bigots to speak their mind. I want them to keep their bigotry, their transphobia, their racism, their misogyny to their self. So I usually don't try to engage respectfully. I just insult them and I move on. So I tweeted this to JK Rowling. You're a repulsive bigot. Go fuck yourself, transphobic trash. Now, shockingly, she saw that tweet and she decided to screen cap it. And she put me on blast responding saying, me shares video of experienced psychiatrist that's wrong who turned whistleblower expressing his deep concern at high numbers of autistic children and children with internalized homophobia presenting at gender clinics them and then she shares my tweet letting her 14 million followers know where to find me and find me they did but before we get to that um my response was not indicative of most of the responses that she received. Sure, there were people that were just calling her a transphobic bigot, but there were people there who actually tried to engage respectfully, but she just bypassed them and went right to my tweet. Why is that? Well, it's because this cry bully wants to be perceived as the victim. Great point, Mike. And now she's writing an entire book on her perceived victimization. It's just embarrassing and pathetic. It is. Now, look, if we want to take her at face value and believe her that this isn't actually a book about her, okay, I don't believe her personally, but, you know, keep that into, you know, uh, take that into consideration rather. Uh, but just to give you a little bit of an update, so after she responded to my tweet and put me on blast, um, I got mass reported, I mean mass reported because of uh, what I said to J.K. Rowling. But not only was I not suspended because my tweet did not violate Twitter's terms of service, but now I'm verified. So it seems like I was the winner in this exchange overall. <laughs> All she did was signal boost me. And I wasn't the only one because about a month earlier or less than a month earlier, actually, she did the same thing with the Vosh tweet. And I talked about that. I won't play a clip of that, but I'll, I'll link to that down below if you wanna see my video on Vosh's exchange with J.K. Rowling. But I just love that she is writing a book now because she's received mean tweets. Presumably. Again, we can, we can take into account what she said 
but we don't have to believe what she said, as I don't. Now, look, do I actually believe that she's basing this book off of uh, Vosh and my mean tweets to her? No, no, I, I'm not that narcissistic, right? But I do believe that this is probably based, at least loosely, off of the thousands of people who have criticized her for her transphobic views. I think that everybody sees through it. Everybody sees through it. Even like her previous books, if you watch ContraPoint's video on J.K. Rowling, where she read J.K. Rowling's book under the same pen name, Robert Galbraith or whatever, like her book was about a serial killer who dressed as a woman or something, like trying to prime people to believe that trans women pose a threat to women. Like she constantly writes about trans people. Now she's writing about how somebody who said bigoted things was the victim of a hate campaign, not that they participated in hate themselves. Uh, so, so she's constantly uh, like trying to make her own art about herself now. And she's falling off. Like nobody cares about you. You're not a victim because you got mean tweets. We all get mean tweets on Twitter. You are getting criticized, rightfully so, because you're saying horrible things that is leading to discrimination against a marginalized group of people. So, you know, keep writing a book about this. I just view this as cope. But it's embarrassing because, like, she is a multimillionaire and she literally lives in a fucking castle. But she can't stop obsessing over the mean tweets. Log off, JK Rowling. Log off. Touch grass. So after seeing multiple polls, well, it confirmed what we suspected. Biden's student debt forgiveness plan is incredibly popular and a majority of Americans, again, according to multiple polls, either support Biden's plan to cancel ten dollars to $20,000 worth of debt, or they want him to go even further. So this is a very popular policy. So in their infinite wisdom, what are Republicans deciding to do about this? Will, of course, attack it, undermine it, and ultimately, they're trying to block it. Now, there's a number of ways that they're going about this. At the state level, GOP governors are trying to undermine this by counting student debt relief as taxable income. So that way, it's not as powerful as Biden initially had planned. And Mississippi is the first state to actually confirm that they will indeed be doing this. So much for the party of tax cuts, right? But they're also trying to block this at the federal level as well. How? Well, Republican attorneys general, along with some GOP senators and officials, some organizations like the Heritage Foundation, they're gearing up to sue the Biden administration in order to block this. And they're doing this because we all know what would happen in the event this reached the Supreme Court. They would block Biden from canceling ten dollars to $20,000 worth of student debt. So the Washington Post has the scoop on this. Republican state attorneys general and other leading conservatives are exploring a slew of potential lawsuits targeting President Biden's plan to cancel some student debt, challenges that could limit or invalidate the policy before it takes full effect. In recent days, a number of GOP attorneys general from states including Arizona, Missouri, and Texas have met privately to discuss a strategy that could see multiple cases filed in different courts around the country. According to a and familiar with their thinking who spoke on the condition of anonymity to describe the confidential talks. Other influential conservatives, including Senator Ted Cruz and allies of the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank, are mulling their own options as they ratchet up criticism of Biden's debt relief plan to additional people familiar with the matter said. And a conservative advocacy group founded by a major Trump donor said it would file a lawsuit against the policy. All of the sources cautioned that no decisions have been made, and as of Thursday morning, no lawsuits appear to have been filed. So this is something that they're currently mulling over. It's not confirmed. And the reason why they haven't already filed a lawsuit, which I'd argue they would have done the second Biden made this announcement, is because 
it's kind of difficult to do. Ted Cruz even admits that it's really difficult to find an American citizen who has standing to sue the government to stop student debt relief. Like you can't just pluck some random conservative off the streets and claim that they want to sue the federal government because they're mad that they have to pay for this handout to people who went to college. You can't do that. So what Ted Cruz uh, is basically suggesting is what if we found a college student who didn't necessarily benefit from student debt forgiveness, but is paying his own tuition, for example, and is going to make the case that this should be stopped because it's going to lead to an increase in tuition across the country. I mean, that's one way that you can find a plaintiff that has standing. The problem is that how do you prove that? How do you prove right now in 2022 before this policy has taken effect that this is going to increase college tuition? I mean, perhaps if you wait a year, college tuition is always going up. So you can just argue that correlation does, in fact, equal causation. But the problem is that you have no proof for this claim. Therefore, if someone like Ted Cruz were to try to find a plaintiff to make this argument, well, by the time you're able to come up with any evidence, if this is indeed the case, the policy will have already taken effect and the debt, at least 10 to 20,000 of it, will have already been canceled. So there's really not a lot that you can do. And when it comes to whether or not somebody has standing to legally block the federal government from canceling student debt, well, the Virginia Law Review tackled this question earlier on April 15th, and they concluded that no one has standing in court to sue for broad student debt cancellation. So the reason why they're dragging their feet and they haven't already filed a lawsuit is because this is tricky, right? It's a little bit more difficult than it looks. But Let's catastrophize for a moment. What if it is the case that they find somebody who has standing and this makes it through the court system and it reaches the Supreme Court? Well, it's still not going to be the nightmare scenario for people who are benefiting from student debt cancellation because as Mark Joseph Stern writes in an article for Slate, SCOTUS will probably kill student debt relief, but Biden has a backup plan. Now, the article itself is really long and in-depth, but we're not going to read all of it. But basically, what Mark Joseph Stern does is he formulates three potential arguments that the Supreme Court will most likely use to legally invalidate student debt cancellation and then debunks them and claims mm, even if they follow through on this and they say that Biden can't do this, Biden can still cancel student debt. So let's read the article here. There are at least three major questions that the Supreme Court could identify here. First, the majority might say that the ability to waive or modify aspects of the law, now they're referring to the HEROES Act passed in 2003, which both Biden and Trump used to cancel some student debt, does not allow the secretary to cancel payments. Second, the majority could say that COVID is not the kind of national emergency envisioned by the law. Third, the majority could say that an affected group must be smaller and more targeted than every lower middle income American who lived through the pandemic. The first line of attack would be very weak. Both Congress and the Department of Education have operated for years on the assumption that the secretary can permanently cancel some loans. SCOTUS could not abolish this power without wreaking havoc on the entire system. The second would be feeble too. Whatever the court thinks about COVID, the HEROES Act is very clear that a presidential declaration of a national emergency triggers the law. What's more debatable is the third potential line of attack. Can the secretary really just decide that COVID put 43 million non-wealthy Americans in a worse position? position financially.
financially in relation to their loans. It's easy to imagine the Supreme Court ruling that the secretary must identify a more specific case of borrowers whose ability to pay off loans was demonstrably harmed by the pandemic. But, and this is key, if the court chooses this route, though, there's a straightforward fix. Biden can simply announce that any borrower affected by the pandemic can apply for relief. If they can prove hardship, their debts get canceled. Now, obviously, that's not necessarily ideal because it would shrink the pull of beneficiaries considerably, but still, Biden would have some way to unilaterally cancel student debt in the worst case scenario of Republicans suing and having their case make it all the way to the Supreme Court, assuming, again, that they can find a plaintiff who has legal standing. But because this is so complicated and they're really treading on legally gray and murky territory, it seems unlikely that this is the route that they go to undermine Joe Biden because it doesn't necessarily seem like it might be successful and it's going to be costly. Now they have unlimited resources, so they have no reason to not try. But really, I think that the biggest threat that we're going to see is Republican governors counting student debt relief as taxable income. Now, if this doesn't really seem possible, well, why would they still try to do the lawsuit? In my opinion, this is nothing more than virtue signaling and pandering to uh, their base. Now, it's weird that they would take this particular position, considering that Biden got a 9% spike when it comes to his approval rating following his announcement that he will be canceling student debt. This is according to a Quinnipiac poll conducted between August 25th and 29th. Now that same poll finds once again that a majority of Americans support student debt cancellation. Now additionally, Cook Political Report shifted five competitive House races to favor Democrats following a spike in voter enthusiasm for Democrats after they passed the Inflation Reduction Act and Biden announced that he would indeed be canceling ten dollars to $20,000 worth of student debt. So after seeing how popular this is, Republicans are going all in on attacking it. And they haven't learned because they're already having to backtrack when it comes to their extreme stance on abortion. If you look at Blake Masters, well, he's having to kind of walk back more extreme elements of his forced birther status. And now GOP, once again, is running into a disaster, head first screaming, we're going to be against this incredibly popular policy. Okay, well, have at it. If it seems like they're not that likely to succeed and this will only hurt their chances in November, I'm all for it. So, have at it. And you'll learn the hard way that Americans actually support student debt relief and getting young people excited is really bad news for the Republican Party. Because not only are young voters more likely to support Biden, but in the event Republicans actually were able to take away the ten dollars to $20,000 that would have been in their pockets had they not blocked this, oh, I mean, young people are going to have a vendetta against Republicans even more so than they already have. So this isn't a war that Republicans want. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.